two passages of Scripture that I want to look at today. Um, the first is found in John 3, Gospel of John, chapter 3. And then um, the second <clears throat> will take us back to the book of Numbers, chapter 21. So look first with me <clears throat> at John 3. And before we look at it, let me just take a second here to uh, tell you what I trust is the Lord's leading for the next um, few days. This Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. Now, there are a number of groups that commemorate Ash Wednesday. There are some who don't. Mostly um, evangelical, small e, churches um, are less likely to pay attention to Ash Wednesday. It's an ancient um, tradition, probably goes back at least, well, it is mentioned in the Council of Nicaea, which was in 325 A.D., not as a requirement, <clears throat> but as a, um, a ritual that was taking root. And Ash Wednesday marks 40 days of observation, repenting, self-denial in certain things leading up to Easter. Now, the 40 days really turns out to be 46 because we don't count Sunday. Um, so it's 40 weekdays, really. But those are days of anticipating Christ's sacrifice for us. And <clears throat> the... They used to, very early centuries, they would put ashes <clears throat> on their heads, on their clothing, and that ended up being reduced to a sign of the cross on the forehead um, of ashes. Ashes representing uh, humility, repentance, and so forth. We hear all through, especially the Old Testament, where someone would, uh, they would clothe themselves in sackcloth and ashes. Okay, that was a sign of, an outward sign of humbling your heart before the Lord. It brings up, not necessarily Ash Wednesday, I'm, it, that is a, a church culture, it's not in Scripture anywhere commanded, um, and by the way, it's gotten to the place where it has become twisted. Um, <clears throat> the day before Ash Wednesday, Tuesday, is called um, Fat Tuesday, okay? Um, or, and Fat Mardi Gras is the French for Fat Tuesday. So really, you start self-denying you you know, I, you know you pick something and usually it's somewhat left up to you but you pick something um, 
to deny yourself for that 40-some days. Um, and yours too many will only eat, um, eat no meat on Fridays and whatever. There's a lot of different ways. But to really get all that wildness that you're going to deny out of your system, apparently, and get everything out of the cupboard that, you know, that's when you eat a bag of Cheetos on Fat Tuesday because you're going to swear off Cheetos for the next 40 days, okay? Um, <clears throat> there's a lot about it then that has become ridiculous. Um, but the one thought I have is to begin to focus on the death and resurrection of Jesus as the ground of all of our hope and our faith and our teaching, that's good. And I, I want to do that um, as we are seven or how many ever Sundays from Easter. So the scripture, I think, will lead us to this is found in John 3. And it's difficult to trim this down and still keep the logical flow. <clears throat> so I think we have to start with verse 1 of John 3, the meeting between Jesus and Nicodemus, and read through the end of their conversation, which goes through verse 21. <clears throat> so we'll begin with verse 1 of chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, or from above, some of your marginal readings might say, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Let me just quickly say that has nothing to do with being baptized. It means unless you, just as you have a physical birth bringing you into this physical world, you have to have a spiritual birth bringing you into the spiritual family and kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh verse 6, <clears throat> is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, <clears throat> how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel? And do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. 
If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. In other words, I'm the only one that has been both on earth and in heaven. I know what I'm talking about. Now, verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Another quick explanation. When it says he did not send him to judge the world, that doesn't mean that Jesus is not here to judge. When he was on earth, he judged every day. It means his, his purpose at this coming was redemption, not the final judgment which he will preside over at his second coming. So this has nothing to do with the word we use today. Judging is you said something bad about somebody. You actually said that, you know, Hitler probably wasn't in heaven, and that's judging. It's not talking about that at all. His mission was to die and redeem us. His second coming, he will come to judge. 18. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Now, verse 14 is the verse that I want us to focus on where Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For an explanation of that, we need to turn now to Numbers. Numbers 21, <clears throat> and there are less verses there for us to read that explain this whole situation to us that Jesus is referring to. <clears throat> Numbers 21, beginning with verse 4. This is near the end of their wanderings in the wilderness, and it begins with leaving a mountain named Mount Hor. This is the mountain that Aaron and Moses went up to the top, and there Aaron died. And was, that was his burial place. They set out then from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, 
And the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against God and Moses, saying, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food that God kindly sent on them every morning. We hate it. The Lord sent fiery serpents. Now that means, that refers to the bite. And the subsequent death was a painful death. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. Because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people, prayed for them. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard or a a pole. And it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard. And it came about that if a serpent bit anyone, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. We'll stay there in that scripture. Because Jesus uses this event, which of course Nicodemus and any of the Jews would have known, as a symbol of, a type, an illustration of what he came to do, and that was to die. So there's some things that we, I think, need to look at here about this event and what it really means regarding what we call the atonement, that what Jesus did made it possible for God, the Father, to extend forgiveness and redemption and salvation to us. I don't have, I'm violating the, what they told us we were supposed to do in seminary, to have three points and they all start with the same letter. <clears throat> I just want to give you some, what I hope are logical points, um, and we'll just give them numbers if that's permissible, okay? Before we start, let me just say this. I want to do my best to try to give us the true picture from Scripture of why Jesus had to die for us. I want to look at that not only today, but the next days ahead of us. Why did he have to die? What did he mean to accomplish by that? There's a thought here that we'll try to make uh, clearer later. What did the death of Jesus, the atonement, accomplish? And in whom did it accomplish something? Meaning. Did the atonement, was it built on us, some need in us, 
to demonstrate God's law, demonstrate His love, or was the object, the, the person affected, if you want to put it that way, by the atonement, the Father? Was there something in the nature of God the Father that had to be satisfied before he could legitimately stretch forth his hand in redemptive love toward rebels. Okay? Now, we don't, don't, if you can't figure that out right now, don't worry about it. Um, but let's look at some steps here that, and some that are kind of presumed when we look at this situation of the serpents. One, <clears throat> first thing that is an assumption, and the Israelites knew, God is holy. His nature, the best definition of the nature of God, what is He like, what is He, is holy love. Not loving holiness. It's not loving holiness. It's holy love. Now you might think, why, why worry about that hair splitting? It's logically in order that God is first holy love in that order. He follows that order in dealing with us as rebels. We don't need to go into the fall right now in the Garden of Eden and yet. But God follows that order always with dealing with us as a lost race whom He seeks to rescue, to redeem. Because He never starts with love. Now, love is back of the very reason that He would even seek us out. Love is back of why in the Garden of Eden He went to them. But, how did He come to them? He came to them accurately with wrath, judgment, condemnation. He had told them previously, if you disobey me and eat of the fruit of this one particular tree, and there was absolutely nothing wrong with the fruit itself. It was, it was a way in which they could exercise the free will God gave them so that they could make a really, truly free choice to serve Him. They were created holy and right with a spontaneous inclination to love and serve God. But that spontaneous inclination to love and serve God was never tested, nor was it theirs by choice. It was theirs by creation. 
it is not an ethical holiness unless they choose to remain what God made them. He gave them that choice. God never looks for love and obedience and affection and service from people who have no choice or who are somehow compelled to do it. That's meaningless to God. He wants voluntary love and service from a free moral agent. So, he created the absolute lowest threshold, easiest test that he could possibly have come up with for mankind by making, we don't know how big the garden was, but it obviously was huge. It was stunningly beautiful. It was lavish in what it provided. And God said, all of this is yours. There's only one tree. There's only one tree that I want you to leave alone. Again, it wasn't because that tree would, you know, had poison in it. It was, it was the lowest possible threshold where they could test, he could test their choice. And all they had to do is just leave it alone. Just don't go there. He said, you can eat all the rest of it. Just leave that one alone. But he did say, the day you eat of it, you'll die. Okay? They ate. They listened to the devil and his deceit, and they ate of it. And they died. That moment, they died spiritually, and that moment, the physical dying process began. In fact, <clears throat> the Hebrew says, when God said, you'll die, it, it literally is, dying you will die. Having died this day spiritually, severed from God, you begin the long process of, uh, process of physically dying. Now, <clears throat> back to God being holy. God is holy, which means He is utterly. And I, this is where I can't get it across. Only I think the Holy Spirit can impress it on our hearts of, of how utterly intolerant of sin a holy God is. Now, I can't get off the subject here, but who God is is critical. The God today um, <clears throat> The God today is someone you don't know, but I remember as a little kid, Jim Lewis, one of my dad's churches, first church I remember, Vancouver, or no, I'm sorry, it was Eugene, Oregon, the second church. Jim Lewis owned a restaurant, nicest guy in the whole world. You couldn't find any, you know, you, he was just a wonderful guy in the community. And Jim always brought to church every Sunday 
a couple of packets of beech nut gum. And he'd hand them out to the kids. I don't know if you remember what beech nut, okay. Um, that was back, you know, before people started cooking meat and stuff. He would always hand out beech nut gum. I love Jim Lewis. Why? Because he was a saint of God and he walked with God and he believed in Christ. No. I loved Jim Lewis because he gave me beech nut gum. I was rather disappointed and maybe a little bit miffed if the other kids got beech nut gum before I did and he ran out or somehow he forgot to bring it and didn't hand it to us. So I'm a little bit... <laughs> we have made God in today's world, especially American brand of Christianity, God is nothing but a bigger, stronger Jim Lewis. He's just got a pocket full of beech nut gum. My, isn't he a good guy? Here's the problem. I don't ever, ever want to diminish, how could we, the love of God. But the love of God is second to His holiness. And He never comes to us first telling us with wringing His hands about how much He misses us and how much He cares for us. The first thing He comes to us with, and it's in the Bible everywhere. I know you probably won't hear this many places in the country, but it doesn't matter. We have to stick to this. The first thing He comes to us with is wrath because we're rebels and we broke His law and we disobeyed Him and we are in open defiance. As creatures, we've risen up against our Creator. As subjects, we've risen up against our King. As children, we've rebelled against our Father. And what does God do to us first? Proving what I'm need to get off of but his nature I'm just going to be flat out honest with you God God's first reaching out to us is not God loves you and has a plan for your life that's not the first thing he says he says what Daniel said to Belshazzar, the wicked king of Babylon, I hold your breath in my hand and can jerk it right now and you're not honoring me. Tonight, you'll be dead. That's his message. That's the first thing he tells us. Our conscience is bothering us 
we feel the weight of guilt and shame. We know that from what Jesus said to Nicodemus. The real judgment, he said, what puts us in trouble with God is that light has come into the world, but we prefer the darkness. By the way, you know what the, what the word really for prefer is? And this is a bit off the subject. Agape. Agapao. We say that agape is divine love. It's become that. But it really just means deep preference. And it started out as a weak word, meaning, yeah, I prefer broccoli over green beans. It's not a big deal. But the New Testament writers, through the Holy Spirit, took that word and made it more descriptive and involving a choice. I prefer God. When John, this, the same writer in his letter, said, if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. Both of those words are agape. If you prefer the world instead of preferring the Father, you're in trouble. What's the deep preference of my heart? Well, initially... It is to have our own way, to be left alone, and God keeps the assembly line of blessings going. But other than that, leave me alone. Don't tell me what to do. So God's first reaction as a holy God is anger. He said in the Psalms, I am angry with the wicked every day. If he does not turn, he said, I draw my bow and fix my arrow, and I sharpen my sword if he doesn't turn. God's first response that he reveals to us is anger. So here, in this situation in the wilderness, the people murmured, complained against God. And I want you to notice this. Verse 5 of Numbers 21 just says, The people spoke against God and Moses, who was God's representative. Now, notice that. They just said things which flowed from their hearts, but they spoke against God. They didn't have some wild, four-day, drunken, drug-fueled orgy. They just spoke against God. You understand? Oh, man, they Stalin, they killed 10, 20 million people. No, they talked against God. How casually in the church today and in all kinds of programs and small group studies and whatever, is that common? Well, of course, you know, we, we, we do, I, we, we get angry with God. You better not. You better not. 
That's what they did. And again, they weren't mixing up meth and selling it to little kids. They weren't involved in human trafficking. They spoke against God because they're angry with him in here. Listen to that. That's because he's holy. God is the most intolerant, holy being in the universe when it comes to rebellion against him by his creatures. And that holiness first produces wrath, second, it produces an act. He never is angry against, and, and hear me here, yes, God's angry at sin, and we say, well, you know, he uh, hates a sin and loves a sinner. That really is a pretty meaningless statement. Honestly, it's pretty meaningless. Sin is not a thing outside of the person. Sin and the sinner can't be separated. Well, he's really mad at the sin, but he's not, he's not mad at the sinner. That's ridiculous. Who did he say in the psalm? He didn't say, if sin doesn't return or turn and repent, I'll shoot it with an arrow. He said, no, the sinner. He didn't say, I am angry with wickedness every day. No, he said, I'm angry with the wicked, the people. Does that sink in? We do all kinds of uh, mental and linguistic gymnastics to try to make God out to be, hear me, nicer and more acceptable than he presents himself. This, after all, is his word. We, really, we're trying to correct God's own revelation of himself. Well, now, he, he probably overstated it, but he, he's not really like that. Yeah, he is. He is. So his first response and the first revelation of himself to us is he is angry with us. And I have to continue to press this. He is angry with us even unto the death sentence. He told Adam and Eve, you disobey me and you're going to die. Now, at whose hands do they die? His. And what did Jesus say? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not, what? Perish. And perish, the word there is destruction, be destroyed, a place of destruction. Partly the devil's, one of the devil's names, Apollyon, the destroyer. He gave himself so we would not perish. And what is perish? Perish is the second death or 
Hell. Now, hell is a subject. Let me help you here. <laughs> a little sarcasm. It's spelled H-E-L-L since no one hears about it anymore. We have sanitized the Bible and the gospel completely from any mention of hell. Jesus, Jesus spoke the most about hell and weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth than any other writer in the whole Bible. He spoke the most about it. But that's what he came to save us from. Once we recognize the awfulness of sin and the horror of perishing, then in God's revelation of himself to us, after he shows us his wrath, after he shows us what the punishment is going to be, then, then he shows me, but I love you enough, and this is if you want to call it, I know we can get into the nature of God and all this kind of stuff, but we could say the dilemma that God has. He is absolutely, unbendingly intolerant of rebellion and will destroy it and the rebel. But he loves the rebel because he made us. And he does not want to have to destroy us. He will, but he, doesn't, he, he, he said, I don't have any pleasure that the wicked die, but rather that they turn and live. And I've provided a way for it. And this, remember this, the anger of the Lord was upon the Israelites and Remember, they didn't stumble into a nest of snakes. God sent them. Where'd they come from? God made them. And God made them to bite them. I'll tell you, you can't solve all the problems in one sermon. Maybe create some. But we've got a messed up, humanized picture of God it is not until I understand who's angry with me and whose sentence of death I'm under it's only then that the news however I've provided a remedy touches my soul gives me hope gives me light and he told the people, notice too, what sent, <clears throat> and I, I will quit, what sent the people to Moses to confess their sins and, them, and to their credit, they were very straightforward. They said, we have sinned against the Lord and against you because we spoke against you. So they didn't hide it. What prompted that? The love of God loves you and has a plan for your life and wants to make you feel willy, willy good all the time. No. What sent them to Moses to openly confess the snakes? 
the snakes. They said, man, alive. We're in trouble. Yeah, you are. What a wonderful day. I know you might think this sounds crazy, but what a blessed day for each of us individually when it really sinks in on us. I've sinned, and this mess I'm in is of my own doing. It is deserved, but notice that these people However, they, they were even maybe not conscious of it. They knew there was hope with God, though. Even though he expresses fury at us, he knows how to mingle into it. Hope. They sought out. They sought God out, the one they knew they defended. They went to him and to his representative. Moses, please pray for us that he'll take, take this away. Now, I, I can finish up down the road, but I don't want to leave you with this thought. Yes, God in his mercy provided them a remedy, told Moses, you, you fashion a brass <coughs> sculpture <coughs> of one of these snakes. Put it on a high pole so those throughout the camp can see it. And then you tell them, when they are bitten, if they'll look at that brass serpent, they'll live. They won't die. They'll live. There's hope. But, notice, it wasn't, it wasn't anti-venom <laughs> that he put on the pole to look at. It was a snake. The very snake that was destroying them. What did he do then? Why did God do that? Even as a requirement for us to obtain redemption, I have to look square in the face my sins and the deserved punishment for them. He makes he made them. What'd they look at? A loving a Jim Lewis with beech nut gum in his pocket? No. He made them. He said, you look at that. It's a snake. It's the very, it reminds you of what you did and drives to the deep part of your soul repentance. Do you understand that? In the same way. So what Jesus said I'm going to be lifted up. And the word lifted up, a lot of people say, if we lift up Jesus, he'll gather the world to us, because Jesus said that. He's not talking about lifted up in the sense of spotlight. Lifted up is literally the term of being crucified. You're put on a cross and you're lifted up. And he said, like the serpent, I'm going to be hung on a pole that all who look at me shall live. There's an old hymn kind of a gospel song, look and live, my brother, live. We can look, but what God requires us to look at is full on in the face what we've done. I, I hope that helps us see this is not merciless of God. It's actually 
the greatest mercy because what he wants me to do in looking in the face what I've done, what I deserve, is to cure us of easily returning to it. That's what, he, that's what he wants to do. Convict me to the point that I'll quit. I don't know if it was my mom's cooking or what, but <coughs> I can remember potato soup with little chunks of bacon in it and I don't know what else. A little kid. <coughs> I got sicker than a dog on that potato bacon soup. And I threw up, uh, uh, you know, I can't remember because I was a little kid, but I swear it was a month. You know what? I don't like potato soup. <laughs> I'm done with it. You understand me? That's what God wants to see. He makes me look right at it. He gets me by the ears and he says, you look at that. That's what you did. We want to cover it over. Oh, you, you're a good little boy. No, you're not a good little boy. But the reason is, he said, I, don't, I want you to be so sick of it, you, you quit. So, back of God's wrath, and it's surely there, is love. So he is holy love. We'll quit there. Let's bow our heads. This is kind of a let it soak on you and think about it sermon. But we have to get a right idea of who God really is before we know how to rightly respond to him. Father in heaven, this morning as we sit in the quiet of the sanctuary, as we do each and every Sunday as you allow us to, I believe, Lord, there's three types of people that are sitting in here this morning, three different states that we're in. One state, we've not been forgiven. We've not chosen to look up and see our sin and our Savior the other person is sitting in this room is one that has fallen back into sin, has one time been forgiven, understands salvation, but has been distracted and made choices to go away from you and your holiness and your love. And the other person is sitting in here this morning, Lord, grateful that we remember looking up at that pole, looking up at our crucified Savior realizing the sin that we had in our lives and how we needed to be forgiven of it. And now we look up and we see our Lord and Savior sitting at the right hand of God the Father. The one thing I know, Lord, is that you're faithful to speak to each heart as we sit in our seats on this Sunday morning and those that are listening online. Father, I pray if there is someone in this room that has not given their life to you, that it's not been forgiven of their sin, that they don't even move, that today is that day that they realize that you are holy and you are angry with the sinner. But within that anger, Lord, you have an ability to draw us near to you 
You have an ability to draw us near to you that we would be forgiven because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. And if there's someone in here this morning, Lord, that needs to repent, that realizes this morning as they're sitting in their seat that they have sinned against you, and it's time for them to repent, may that be so today, Lord. And for those that might just remember that they were once sinners and they have been redeemed and forgiven, may we never forget, Lord, that it is by your grace and by your mercy that we've experienced that. So, Father, I just pray that we would respond out of obedience to whatever you've spoken to us about this morning. Simply put, we know you love us, but we know you're God. And we know we're going to be held account for the wrath that is due us until we allow Jesus to be our substitute. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Love you guys. You're dismissed. Have a great day, everyone.